Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, January the 15th. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. On today's show, the Australian wildfires now have those on the island dealing with some of the worst air quality in the world. Fires continue to burn there, and it doesn't look like things will let up anytime soon. I'll be joined by TRU Professor of Environmental Studies, Michael Mehta, at the end of the show. And to kick off the back half, real estate agents in B.C. will be required to take a new course dealing with the issue of money laundering. So we'll speak with the CEO of the Real Estate Council of BC at around the 35-minute mark. But to begin today's show, I am joined by Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Ken, how you doing? Uh, very chilly. Good morning to you, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, how are you handling this weather right now? I mean, everyone else is complaining about it. How about yourself? I'm complaining about it too, but I uh, managed to make it to work for three straight days, so I, I guess uh, we're, we're going to bear through the brunt <laughs> of this. Just a, a word of caution, though, to uh, city residents. The roads are slippery. Uh, you know, the problem that we have in this kind of weather is that the traction material that you put down uh, doesn't stay. It erodes very, very quickly. So the intersections are particularly uh, slippery. And, you know, just take some extra time. If you've got a lab at uh, TRU that starts at 11, maybe start getting there at 10 o'clock instead of waiting until quarter to 11 to rush up there like you might do. So, uh, you know, some of the major routes, the... Uh, uh, East Trans Canada Highway, uh, certainly uh, the Columbia Street uh, piece, uh, the Halston, those are plugged and that's uh, very slow going and uh, just slow down, take it easy and uh, we'll all get through this. That's always a good message, a good word of caution to take that extra time and hopefully people listen, not everybody does and that... Uh tends to result in some bad situations, so hopefully they take their extra time here today. Um, and, and, you know, back at council last night for the first time, in a, or yesterday, excuse me, and for the first time in about a month, I guess, just, uh, you know, how did it feel to get back around those uh, council tables? Yeah, we, you know, we had our Christmas break and then uh, the New Year break, and uh, so we had a big meeting yesterday, lots of very weighty topics on the agenda, and uh, so council was in session for three and a half, four hours yesterday. It was uh, it was a long meeting, but I think a productive one. I, I think uh, some significant decisions were made uh, yesterday that uh, are really going to chart uh, the course for the future of Camelops. Uh, one issue that uh, you know was on my agenda that I wanted to discuss was uh, the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the infrastructure that's currently out in Westside. Uh, Councillor Dennis Walsh had brought forward the item yesterday asking for council support in, in sort of moving that line and decommissioning what's there now. Uh, council, from what I understand, did not support that issue. Um, I guess just, were you surprised? I mean, it just seemed to me like sort of one of those easy, uh, you know, let's make the call to the uh, Canadian Energy Regulator and, and see if they'll make the move. And, and if not, I mean, it doesn't didn't seem like a lot of work either way. So I'm just curious you know why why council didn't move ahead with or didn't have the appetite for that you know there was there was good discussion around the the council table yesterday but uh, ultimately the decision was uh, seven to one uh, against supporting that I think uh, what you have to look at is the the motion was couched in and around uh, risks to West West side residents and uh, clearly that is not the case I think uh, you know we have pipelines underneath uh, camelops all over the place there's a high pressure gas pipeline right 
right through Juniper Ridge. Uh, you know, there's uh, all kinds of infrastructure under the ground. Uh, just because it's there doesn't mean it's dangerous. And I, I think the assurances from the TMX uh, group uh, that uh, were there, plus uh, the research that councillors had done over the Christmas break, uh, led them to believe that this was not something worth pursuing. Do you think having that extra month, because we kind of knew that that would be coming up here early in the in January for, for quite some time, so do you think having the, you know, with council having that winter break and a chance to really do some, some research and some study on this topic, I mean, did that, do you think, prove beneficial yesterday in helping to, to maybe move that conversation along a little quickly, more quickly than maybe it otherwise could have? Well, not just for that topic, but certainly uh, some of the reports of downtown revitalization, tax exemption, the development cost charges bylaw, which is a very complex uh, bylaw, and uh, some of the issues related to industrial tax, those were particularly meaty topics. And uh, the fact that we had additional time uh, to do that kind of research and homework, I think, uh, paid dividends yesterday. The, the quality of discussion was good, uh, and I think the decisions are ultimately the right ones. Um, yeah, so you brought up the revitalization tax exemption, uh, that looking to include commercial development in the downtown and along the, the North Shore. Um, you were one of those uh, to vote against this proposal. Uh, we had talked about this before, and, and you had you know said you were kind of opposed to the idea then, but I'll just ask again, you know, this process has moved along. Just uh, to reiterate, what are your concerns about providing this 10-year uh, tax revitalization exemption? Well, I'm glad I was consistent from our last conversation <laughs> to this one, uh, but... Uh, no, I, I believe in less government, not more, and, and uh, the less government has to do with business decisions, I think, the better. But uh, that said, uh, Councillor uh, Mike O'Reilly brought this forward, and uh, there was an appetite on Council to uh, accept the additions to the revitalization bylaws that we have in place, and a commitment to review those in 2020. And, uh, you know, the, the sentiment of Council, uh, you know, was 6-2 uh, in, in favor of that, and uh, I think if that's the direction that we're going to go, uh, then we need to do it right. So let's look at, uh, you know, what other communities are doing. Look at perhaps a sliding scale for uh, tax exemption so that it's not the 100% for the 10 right. years, but rather we wean these projects off of uh, their tax exemption over a period of time. And uh, let's look at the boundaries. Uh, you know, it, it, the boundary here is about a block away from this station. Is that the right place to have that boundary, or should we look at it citywide and uh, use the uh, revitalization tax exemption to support some of the goals that we have in the, uh, you know, CAM plan about creating commercial nodes in some of the uh, more residential areas of the city so that we reduce our dependence on automobile transportation? Yeah, and then you mentioned a 100% tax exemption. That's not the case, I don't believe, but uh, I know you'd have a lot of angry people if that were to be the case. <laughs> um, yeah, you also mentioned this as well in, in uh, a couple of questions ago, but the uh, development cost charges policy. Um, you'd like to see some development, uh, from what I understand, connecting uh, Aberdeen and Pineview. Um, and, and just kind of explain your stance here on this policy as it stands right now and, and why this is something that uh, you, you think might be a little bit silly to give some tax breaks uh, when, when talking about some of that kind of work. Yeah, and that, that uh, you know, you talk about uh, a big decision. That's a $70 million decision that we made yesterday in terms of the impact of the DCC bylaw on the development community in Camels. But, you know, there is the issue of assist factors. Uh, I'm not a big fan of assist factors, but uh, in so far as the 10% assist factor for transportation was concerned, uh, I was prepared to support that with a 
commitment that developers, uh, particularly in that uh, area of Aberdeen and Pineview Valley, are going to work diligently uh, to make that connection uh, through from Pineview to Aberdeen. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, we have our uh, KFR Hall 7 up there, which uh, anytime it responds, it has to respond down Pacific Way and onto the highway. Uh, we could uh, use that connector road and uh, access the highway through Copperhead, and uh, we would be much faster in our response for particularly rescues in the Coquihalla, as well as uh, being able to provide uh, fire services into the Pineview Valley area. Also, the issues related to the school district, of course, they have catchment areas, and those are kind of uh, dictated by how people would make their way to school. And, you know, you have two schools that are relatively close together who have overcrowding problems, and they can't move kids back and forth because there is no connection there. Right. So that would make some sense. And plus, it, it would really help that south-west uh, sector grow and develop, and that's really uh, the future in terms of single-family residential development in Kamloops. So so, you know, to see that connection, I think, is important. And if we're going to provide an assist factor of, uh, uh, you know, that kind of dollars, uh, we need to be able to get some commitment from developers that they're going to move forth with in terms of making uh, those improvements. Awesome. Um, that's about all I had for you here, Ken. Uh, one other question I guess I'll throw on the table. Um, you know, I understand there was some discussion around uh, Peterson Creek funding as well yesterday. Yeah, uh, Peterson Creek, it's interesting. It, it's, uh, you know, largely underground from the government precinct all the way down to the river. And uh, the advice that we have from our drainage engineer uh, is that uh, that uh, is perhaps undersized when you look at climate change and that uh, we need to study that channel and uh, what it looks like so that we don't have a catastrophic overflow uh, at any of those pinch points. So uh, $150,000 towards looking at that uh, coming up this year right on um yeah like i said that's that's really all i had on my agenda here ken anything else that you want to throw on the table while uh while i have you in here no i i think uh, we just need to uh, work together as a community to make it through this cold snap uh, we have some concerns of course for uh, homeless and those less fortunate as well uh, we're going to have another dump of snow here there are going to be issues with windrows there's going to be issues with uh, you know some of the hilly areas so please be patient we have all of our crews uh, mobilized, all of our equipment is working, and uh, we are going as diligently as we possibly can to uh, deal with this uh, kind of freakish winter weather. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been a pain here for the last few days, but uh, come early next week, anyway, we're starting to look at some plus temperatures, so I'm sure we're all looking forward to that. And apparently we're doing better than the lower mainland. Well, there you go. I mean, that's always the case, though, right? <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Ken. Always appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Awesome. That was Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Stick around because we got more Jeff Andrea show coming up after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Wednesday, Hump Day, the center point of the week. It is all downhill from here, and that applies not only to the week itself, but probably this show as well. It is time for That's Whack Wednesday. It's That's Whack Wednesday. If you haven't heard this segment before, I take a look at what's happening in the world, and if I think it's whack, well, 
then I'm going to let you know about it right here and now. Let's start with the obvious, the weather. Needless to say, the weather right now is pretty wet. Today we are looking at a high of minus 15 in Kamloops with the wind chill. That's going to feel more like minus 25 to 30. Mmm, no. I'm not okay with that. It's too cold. Look, I get if some people out there like the winter, and if you're a glass half full type of person saying something like, hey, at least we don't live in Edmonton or somewhere else where this type of weather is to be expected throughout the entire month of January and into February and even longer than that. Look, I get it. We're better than that, but... I mean, here, I don't like complaining about this one week of bitter cold. That in itself is just a little bit... But that doesn't change the fact that I am over it, guys. I'm wimping out here, and you know, that's not even a complaint, because I will tell you right now, even if I could handle the cold better, it doesn't mean that I want to. Can't wait for Saturday. It looks like things are going to start to warm up. I'm so sick of this weather. This weather is... Now, remember the Pickering nuclear scare over the weekend? A warning of an unspecified problem at the Pickering nuclear generating station was sent an error to cell phones, radios, and TVs across Ontario on Sunday. Now, the issue itself, I think, was a little bit... Well, apparently now, orders for potassium iodide pills have surged in Ontario after that false alarm. Ontario Power Generating says that more than 32,000 orders for the pills have been placed since the alert. The pills help protect the thyroid gland and reduce the risk of cancer if radioactive iodine is released into the air. Now, in Ontario, potassium iodide pills are distributed to residents within 10 kilometers of a nuclear facility, and others living within a 50-kilometer radius of one can order them through a website. Now, I'm not saying this is a dumb thing. I mean, if you live close to the nuclear facilities, then I can understand doing whatever you can to protect yourself, but I find it a little hard to believe that taking a pill is the best option, especially if there's a chance that you could be the next superhero. I mean, come on. Let's let this happen. Let's become the next Superman or Spider-Man or, or whoever. Let's stop taking these pills because I think the fact that we're taking these pills to protect ourselves from a nuclear scare, well, I don't know. In my opinion, that just sounds a little bit... Now, an interesting piece out of the Toronto Sun yesterday. A study is estimating that 5% of small businesses have stopped taking cash, and an additional 8% plan to stop accepting cash within the next five years. I think that's a little bit... I mean, I like having cash. It's the best way to buy stuff on the black market, right? No, this is probably more of a big city thing right now. But I think it's only a matter of time before we move into a cashless society. If one in 20 businesses isn't taking cash now, and soon that number will be 3 in 20, and probably soon after that it will be 15 out of 20, then what the heck are we doing arguing about who should be on our $5 bill? Look, let's hurry up and move this conversation along. Whose face should be on my debit card? I think that's the real question that should be debated. All right, now, since it's Wednesday, let me take a chance to call some people out here, because this, this is pretty interesting, in my opinion. But first, a look at the local holiday that was called distasteful and puerile by a panel of hillbillies. Whacking day! A recently resurfaced study out of Britain claims that men spend seven hours a year hiding in the bathroom in order to escape their family. That equals a little over one minute a day spent in the bathroom hiding. One minute a day for an entire year. 23% of the 1,000 people that responded to this survey said that they consider the bathroom to be their safe space. Sorry, gentlemen, but that's not the greatest reason to be hiding in the loo. I mean... 
I think we should probably just be real with ourselves and perhaps introduce a little more fiber into our diets, spend a little less time in the bathroom, and a little more time with those who claim they love us. Hiding in the bathroom, gentlemen, that's a little bit... And you know what? I'm sorry to say it, but uh, I just had to call you out. I just had to call you out. As they would say in Goodfellas, I guess you just got whacked. You got out of line, you got whacked. Everybody knew the rules. And to end things off here, it's a sad reality of the world we live in, but more people in the United States now say they have more faith in companies like Amazon and Google to, quote, do the right thing than they do in the president, the news media, and even the police. If you ask someone, do you have more trust in Amazon's return policy or in the police to actually come help you out when you're in distress? And the answer that they have is, well, I believe more in Jeff Bezos. Well, I'm sorry, everybody, but that is a little bit. Now, we can take that lack of trust in the U.S. even further. 50% of people said that they trusted their family position to do the right thing. And that was the highest level of trust on this study. One in two people would go see their doctor, ask them what's wrong, and when their doctor has an answer, they just either accept it or are just as likely to say, eh, you're just a quack, and try to tell the doctor that they're wrong. I don't know. If that's the way your healthcare system works, well, in my opinion, I think I have a problem with that. Or should I say that I think that is a little bit... Whack. This has been That's Whack Wednesday. That's Whack Wednesday with Jeff Andreas. All right. Well, we got some more good stuff coming up here on the Jeff Andreas Show as we uh, get set for the back half of the program here, the second half hour. At the very end of the show, we're going to be talking about Australia and the air quality problems that they are currently having there. And there's been some uh, scary scenes out of that country. And, uh, well, I'm going to be talking more about that with the professor of environmental studies at TRU. So that'll be coming up at around the 50-minute mark. But coming up next, I'm going to be talking about BC Realtors. Soon, they will have to be taking a course on the subject of money laundering. Starting April 1, it will be required material to be a realtor in British Columbia, learning more about money laundering. I'll be joined by the CEO of the BC Real Estate Council after this. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, January the 15th. Money laundering. It is a problem that impacts many industries in B.C. and is impacting the economy in some way, shape, or form as well. Real estate is not immune to the issue, and now, as a real estate professional, you will have to take a new mandatory course starting this year called Anti-Money Laundering in Real Estate. Here to discuss this course and why it's something that realtors need is the CEO of the Real Estate Council of British Columbia, Aaron Seeley. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to join me here today. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So this this online, or I don't know if it's an online course, this course, excuse me, it, it's going to teach realtors how to identify red flags for money laundering and then sort of what steps to take to report suspicious transactions. Why is this something that has been identified as a need for the industry? So you're correct that it is an online course, and it is a companion to other training that real estate professionals have had, whether through their industry association or potentially through CREA federally, because the real estate professions had a long-standing requirement to report suspicious activity to the FINTRAC, the federal agency responsible for collecting that intelligence. 
What this course does is uh, talk more about the complexity of the issue of money laundering, try to dispel some of the myths. It's not just about bags of cash and really help educate real estate professionals on um, what to look for, what the red flags are, how to take careful notes and how to report more effectively to the federal government. Okay, so this is about more than just saying someone's uh, providing me with a duffel bag full of money and that's probably, you know, a little bit suspicious and something that should be flagged down. This is about more than that. Can you maybe um, present me some ideas of, of what other things people might be looking for? I don't know to probably have time to get into all of it, but just, you know, what other kinds of red flags could pop up when talking about real estate transactions? Sure. It is a complex issue and it really isn't just Vancouver. It is province-wide and what two government reports identified uh, published in 2019. Both of those reports talked about how deep and broad this issue is and how it's not just about the cash. It is a, it's often money that's coming through financial institution potentially. It's being reintegrated back into the economy. So it's not always easy to track it. And some of the red flags that we talk about in the course include things like the use of unregulated lenders or making a purchase without a mortgage or the use of corporations or nominees or trustees. So that means one person's purchasing the property and potentially someone else is going to benefit from that purchase. We also know that um, there are red flags, things like large remodeling projects that have been done with cash. And there are some things where cash is related. Often these things in isolation aren't going to be uh, needing a suspicious transaction report, but it's a combination of factors and it's the responsibility of the profession to know their client. And that's what this course really emphasizes. Um, is there any way to quantify just how big of a problem this is in British Columbia? I mean, how, how much money do you think is being, um, you know, trans, transferred through the real estate industry that uh, obviously is not, uh, you know, making its way through the economy as it's supposed to? Is there any way to, to put a, a number on that? So uh, one of the reports last year by an uh, expert panel combating money laundering in BC was its title, and that quantified money laundering potentially in the province, so not just in real estate, but province-wide, and it put it in the range of almost $7 billion potentially. That's the first time we've seen that kind of quantification, and that's... Uh, impossible to ignore. We don't know exactly how much of that's come through real estate. We know real estate's an attractive asset. There are relatively low barriers to purchase real estate in BC. It's appreciating, it's a luxury item, and it's highly sought after. So we know that that's a risk area in the province. Yeah, I would think, uh, you know, looking at the real estate market is probably one of the more preferred ways to go about um, hiding your money just because you are dealing with such large sums, right? That's probably makes it what makes it so attractive. It makes it desirable, and other reports have talked about other luxury goods. You know, we've also heard about luxury cars being a target. And in a regulated profession, real estate professionals need to make sure they're aware of all the latest information, and that's what this course really provides. So when this course does become mandatory, I understand, uh, you know, that when, when uh, people start renewing their licenses after April 1st, this course is going to be mandatory and, and part of that renewal li of your license process. Um, so what, what kind of work goes into this? Just, uh, you know, if I was a real estate agent and uh, was looking to renew my, li my license later this year, um, you know, I have to take this course. So what does that look like? How long will it take to, you know, get online and, and go through the course material and, and uh, you know, pass a test or exam or whatever is the case at the end of it? Just, you know, can you take me through that process and how it works? Sure. So real estate agents are, are not new to continuing education. They've always had some requirements. Right now, there are four courses. 
that real estate professionals have to take, one called Legal Update, one that's an update on new agency rules in British Columbia, and a new course that's coming, Ethics, that will be introduced later in 2019. But specifically, this anti-money laundering course, it is online. It's about two to five hours of time, and we have um, really low pricing right now. We're offering it just for $25, which is really less than the cost to develop it, to try to incentivize some early uptake. And as of April 1st, it will be mandatory. There is a 70% pass mark on the course, so it is assessed, and it's important that real estate professionals meet that mark in order to be able to renew their license, and it's a two-year licensing cycle. Okay, so you take this course uh, once every two years then, or, or uh, you know, once Essentially. Yeah. yeah, potentially we may update the course. It may be a one-time offering. The foundational elements are what we want to ensure real estate professionals have right now and the up-to-date information. It may be that we don't continue with this course and we introduce something else, but it is a consistent need in the profession to stay on top of all of the latest knowledge, and so continuing education is always fundamental in license renewal. Okay, so this probably applies then when we're talking about how you're going to kind of review the course material over time and, and uh, you know, just see how effective it is but um, you know how much can one really learn in, in the five to seven hours of online material I mean are, are people you think those out there in the industry right now will benefit a lot from this I mean I obviously that's the intent is to be able to um, you know help make those in the industry more aware of the signs and symptoms of what laundering might look like do you think this will have a big impact in this five to seven hour course and how people kind of uh, maybe stare a little bit closer at some of the transactions that occur in the industry um, you know moving forward we hope it will. We really heard from industry that they wanted more education in this area. We know there's a heightened interest, and it's all about how you apply this information in practice. So it's a short course. Uh, I think everyone's going to learn something from it. We've had a lot of positive feedback already, and we have a great partnership with the UBC Sauter School of Business, the real estate division, so we've drawn on a lot of their expertise as well as legal expertise in this area. So it is uh, a continuing education, so it's one course, and we do think it's going to make a difference. We think it will change that lens on how the profession looks at the risks and ensures that they are complying with those federal reporting requirements. Now, I did want to ask this question. It might be a little bit silly, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is there any concern, you know, when you're offering a course like this, um, that there are any, quote-unquote, dirty real estate agents, if you will, who are already out there who might take this course and now perhaps might be better at laundering money as a result? Is that an issue that ever gets discussed? I think the self-interest part of a commission-based profession like real estate is always something that we grapple with as regulators. Part of what we focus on is building that public trust and making sure that the public interest is put first. There is going to be, as I mentioned, a new course focusing again on ethics, and there are significant consequences for non-compliance with the federal reporting legislation, both through fines and even criminal action. So it's really important that as the regulator, we emphasize how serious this is, and we do have a very strong set of penalties where there's discipline and enforcement required. We investigate all complaints fully. We receive over a thousand complaints a year from the public and we take those very seriously. So we hope those through proactive measures like education, but also those remedial or discipline measures, we are ensuring the public's protected. Uh, a thousand complaints from the public, is that, uh, does that sound like a high number or does that sound like a low number to you? 
Uh, it depends. It's grown, and part of that's because we've been uh, out there uh, making sure that people understand who the Real Estate Council is. Part of it's the increase in the number of transactions. You know, between eighty and one hundred thousand transactions a year. A uh, thousand complaints is probably relative to that number. We'd like to make sure there's fewer complaints. We'd like to educate consumers more. That's all part of our strategy in the next few months. Right on, Aaron. Well, uh, I think that pretty much covers it. I think this is pretty interesting stuff and just, uh, you know, a, a topic that I came across and thought, hmm, you know, that's something that uh, you don't hear about every day is just uh, the, the ability to launder money and, and trying to uh, discourage that from happening and, and uh, just the responsibility that those in the industry have to, to flag it, to see it and, and report it. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the program today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Awesome. That was Aaron Seeley, the CEO of the BC Real Estate Council. Yeah, so starting April 1st, when uh, real estate agents in the province go to renew their license, they will have to take this mandatory money laundering course called Anti-Money Laundering in Real Estate. So uh, five to seven hour course. Uh, obviously, she believes that you can learn uh, at least a few new things as a result of taking the time to, to go online and, and take the course and take the test. And it's going to take 70% to actually pass in order to get your license. So this will be something that people will be taking uh, and taking advantage of in order to actually, you know, do the job that they want. Um, so they'll be learning more about anti-money laundering. Seven billion dollars, she said. Can you believe that? Seven billion dollars with a B is laundered in the province um, in, on, on any given year. I believe that was a 2018 study that she had uh, uh, related to or reported. So that's, you know, on an annual basis, if we're talking about $7 billion that is passing through the economy, uh, or I guess isn't passing through the economy in, in the way that it is supposed to, um, I mean, that that's a concern. That's a lot of tax dollars that we could be taking more advantage of. And uh, real estate, like I had mentioned, is one of those industries where when we're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars being um, moving through hands at any given time, it's pretty significant and uh, something that I think we need to be paying attention to. And clearly the BC Real Estate Council is paying attention to it and uh, is trying to do what it can to combat it. So, uh, yeah, according to this, agents must report uh, within 15 days if they receive $10,000 or more in cash. So like she had said, that's kind of the evident one. If you're receiving a duffel bag full of $10,000 plus, yeah, that's probably something that you should be reporting. Or uh, that could also apply, though, in multiple transactions within within a 24-hour period. So, um, you know, that that's uh, smaller transactions that could add up as well. So something for people to be paying attention to, something to be concerned about, I think, if you're just a member of the, the general tax-paying public. And, and hopefully with, uh, with a course like this, it will help reduce the instances of money laundering occurring. And uh, BC real estate agents will be better equipped to uh, identify problems and then report those problems once indeed they are identified. Coming up after the break, Australia. It is continuing to burn, and there continues to be increased worries about the air quality that people are breathing in the continent. I'll be talking more about that with the professor from Thompson Rivers University after this. So please, don't go anywhere. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
Welcome back to the show here on Wednesday the 15th. It might be pretty darn cold here in Kamloops right now, but Australia has a bit of a different tune that's being sung right now. The air quality in Australia continues to grow worse. We've seen the air quality index rating hit the highest level possible. Uh, we've seen fire alarms having been sounding in high-rise buildings across Sydney and Melbourne as, as uh, dense smoke from distant wildfires confuses those electronic sensors. Uh, modern government office blocks in the Australian capital have been closed because of the air inside is too dangerous to breathe. And even just earlier uh, yesterday, we saw some tennis players who are competing for spots in the first major tennis tournament of the year, the Australian Open, have to be forced to retire during matches after suffering from severe coughing fits, no doubt induced by the air quality there. Here to discuss the issue now is Professor of Environmental Studies at Thompson Rivers University, Dr. Michael Mehta. Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show here. It's my pleasure, Jeff. So, I mean, from your estimation, I mean, just how bad is this situation right right now? I mean, can you kind of compare it to what we experienced here in maybe 2017 and 2018 in the summers here in Kamloops? Or, you know, is that even comparable? Is it so much worse in Australia right now that maybe we don't even really know exactly what's going on? What Australia is going through right now is unprecedented. Uh, when we went through our wildfire summers in 2018 and 2019, uh, it was pretty bad, as all of us remember, and uh, it was fairly long. But in Australia, the fires have been going on since uh, at least July of 2019. And, um, for example, on January 1st of this year in the capital, Canberra, levels hit astronomical numbers of over 5,000 on the air quality index. We were uh, hovering in the 500 range. Uh, doesn't really go much higher than that, but uh, they were able to extrapolate that in Australia. So it is incredibly bad down there. So what, what is, I guess, is the major concern when we're looking at uh, air quality that is, um, you know, that, that poor? I mean, what, what sorts of damage uh, could, could be resulted to people if they are just kind of out and about uh, just living their normal lives and, and, and not really worrying about this kind of uh, this air that they're breathing? It's a tragic situation for sure, and uh, there are hundreds if not thousands of studies on the impacts of air pollution. Most of them have focused on the longer term what we call chronic exposures, uh, but um, now with recent wildfires being a problem around the world, uh, a lot more focusing on the short-term acute effects. And uh, it, it's clear one of the, the main impacts for, for some people, especially people that are older or maybe sensitive in a variety of ways, is that heart attacks and strokes are the uh, most likely likely outcomes, um, extreme outcomes of exposure to this kind of acute smoke. So it is serious, and uh, it's difficult to know what the uh, long-term effects will be on people that are exposed. So I guess with that in mind, I mean, I, I think it's probably pretty important for people who are, you know, in Australia and just sort of walking around. I mean, I've seen people wearing everything from nothing to, uh, you know, some of those, like, drywall masks that you would wear if you're just kind of working on your home for a day, to those, like, full-fledged gas masks that looks like you're, uh, you know, part of a video game or in the Army or something something along those lines. I mean, um, what, what sort of uh, precautions, I guess, should people be taking? I mean, I, I would guess they shouldn't be doing nothing, but, um, you know, how extreme do you think people should be going when, when talking about trying to mitigate their risk of, of contracting any issues with their lungs or, or like you had mentioned, a heart attack? Well, we're at the levels that are that high. We're, we're really kind of similar to what a, a, a firefighter might be in if they were in a, a fully, you know, in, in, engulfed house. Uh, and we wouldn't send anybody into that kind of environment without protection, including oxygen. So some of those levels are so extreme that um, you know, these masks may not even be effective at that level. Uh, I think that it's, it's really important for people there to, to recognize that uh, um, they're not alone. I mean, there are lots of examples around the world of people that have uh, 
proactively try to protect themselves from exposures. Uh, and uh, in a sense, uh, this is a, a warning that uh, in, the, in the future we're going to be facing more and more of these kinds of wildfires and more of these exposures. And, uh, yeah, with that in mind, I mean, one of the, the kind of interesting stories that has come out here this week uh, in regards to these wildfires and, and the air quality there is that NASA has been talking about the, how, the, how the smoke from these fires will will look to do an entire trip around the globe. I mean, with that in mind, um, you know, obviously there's concern for those who are in Australia, but with the fact that this, um, you know, the smoke is going to be traveling and, and, you know, who knows where it's necessarily going to end up exactly, should that be something that we should be aware of here in BC? I mean, it seems like Australia Australia is so far away, but yet, um, you know, maybe this is something that we should be paying attention to in terms of our own air quality. I don't think it's going to have an effect here um, because of the the winds and the hemispheric effects of being in the northern and southern uh, latitudes. But we do know that um, with uh, uh, the British Columbia forest fires, uh, that the smoke worked its way across uh, Canada and to Europe um, a couple of years ago. Uh, I have been monitoring the air pollution sensor network around uh, the southern hemisphere, and it seems that most of the pollution that we're seeing in um, southeastern Australia, New South Wales, and Victoria states, is concentrated still in that region. It hasn't even really hit New Zealand to that extent yet, so it's hard to know exactly what will happen. But with that in mind, do you think it's just a matter of time before it moves out? I can't imagine it would just kind of hover where it is, uh, you know, for forever. Yeah, that depends a lot on uh, yeah. atmospheric conditions, but uh, you're right. It's it's unlikely to stay resonant or local. Uh, certainly, if there are rains, which they, they tr- rainfall, which they, they f- you know, truly need, it'll help uh, bring it back down to ground level and uh, stabilize it, but who knows when that will happen. Right on. Uh, well, that's pretty much all I had on that topic for you, Dr. Meta. I did want to ask, too, while I have you on the line, uh, i got about a minute left here, so I, I understand you're giving a talk on, on solar energy on Monday at uh, Iron Road Brewing as part of the 50th anniversary of free events for TRU. Um, so the subject around solar energy, just what can you tell me about this uh, you know, talk that you're going to be giving and, and why it's something that people might be interested in? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, so this coming Monday, the 20th at 7 o'clock at Iron Road Brewery, TRU is starting a, a special annual event as a result, or a special event as a result of our 50th anniversary, as you mentioned, um, where um, different experts from the, the university will talk to people in the community. It's an informal lecture, chance to chat. And I'm going to talk about um, solar solar power, solar photovoltaics, and advances in the technology, and what um, what you, you, know, you could do to reduce your own environmental footprint. So it's a chance for people to to learn about state-of-the-art uh, technology, a Q&A period, and uh, an informal chance to have a beer together. So really welcome anybody in the community who wants to come out. Right on. Well, I always am open for a chance to have a beer, so uh, maybe I'll be <laughs> there on Monday. Thanks so much, Dr. Meta. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Awesome. That was uh, Dr. Michael Mehta with the uh, Thompson Rivers University, uh, yeah, talking about the Australian wildfires there and just some of the concerns that the people there on the continent are dealing with. Uh, That doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon, so hopefully they are taking the necessary precautions to keep themselves safe. Uh, Like like you had mentioned, we we dealt with this, uh, you know, in 2017 and 2018, and uh, we we know what they're going through, but maybe even still we don't have uh, quite the same experience when it comes to those uh, Australian wildfires. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I would like to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed her time while it lasted.